Hello and welcome to the Amplifier Podcast, the show where the best in business discuss how you can grow your business best. I'm Wyatt McPherson, I produce this show, and on this episode, our host Don Cooper is joined by Todd Snellgrove for his second of three episodes with us to talk about value creation and all aspects of a successful business. Todd is a senior member of Experts in Value, driving value-focused selling and culture language to help businesses create and maintain high value creation for their clients. Todd is also a director and editor of the book Value First, Then Price, quantifying value in business-to-business markets from the perspective of both buyers and sellers. Todd is on two more episodes of the podcast out at the same time as this one, so make sure you check those out too, and don't forget to subscribe so you never miss any in the future. But with all that said, I truly do hope that you enjoy this episode of the Amplifier Podcast. You know, what about companies that buy this way? Can you give me some examples of companies that that have figured out how to buy on value because they are they are either calculating value that they are buying or they're calculating the what they're trying to get for value like how does how does that play out they're all most of them are on a journey right now trying to figure out what is value and then how they would how they would measure it um you mentioned in the introduction uh, university of tennessee american school but a big supply chain uh program and uh, the professor that I got to meet called Kate Vitasek uh, got a bunch of money from the U.S. Department of Defense a decade ago. And they're the biggest purchaser in the world. They buy more stuff than any other individual in the world does. You know, clothing and software, but art, whatever. And they said, we buy a lot, but we don't get value. What are we doing wrong? So her PhD students went around the world and talked to a bunch of companies. And they, she came back with... Uh, five key takeaways of what good companies do. And, and, and the first is engaging your suppliers around a win-win. What's in it for we? Not what's in it for me, not what's in it for I, what's in it for we. And I think a real interesting dynamic or change that I saw there was old procurement strategy. And I met Kate the first time we did a, a, a co-presentation, whatever. I presented it and she presented afterwards uh, on the same stage and it was kind of interesting. Procurement believes that if they can take everything they're buying and narrow it down with highest specificity pro- possible, price is the only difference. Right. So, and, and, and- You mean they're looking for apples to apples. And I can do that by making the rules. So real quickly, I did a slide saying, you've got two lawnmowers, you go to Canadian Tire, you go to Home Depot, wherever you buy a lawnmower, and they both have the same specification. They're both gas and they both have four wheels. And then I asked the audience, would you ever buy the one that was $300 versus 250? And everybody says yes, because of, you know, the color, believe it or not, yeah. people pay for color, um, the options, the brand name. I mean, you know, they're both lawnmowers, right? And then Kate gets up afterwards and she was Todd, I loved your presentation. And I understand why Tim uh, put, us, put us in this order, but she looks, she goes, I have a question for you though. Why do you mow your lawn? And it, I think in my whole life, it's probably the toughest question that's ever been asked of me because I sat there with everybody staring at me going, um, and then she could tell that I didn't have an answer. And I'm like, are, are you supposed to? I mean, she goes, actually, no, I mean, you know, you could probably get yelled at by somebody, but you probably mow your lawn to make it look good. And I said, yeah, and healthy. Yeah, okay, that makes sense, Kate. And she goes, okay. Um, so let's say, Todd, you decide you don't want to mow the lawn. You're going to hire somebody to do it. I said, okay. She goes, 
Now let's let's just talk real quickly. You know, if you're a procurement person and Todd's gonna get two options and she points to two different people and this person's gonna charge you twenty dollars a week and this one's gonna charge you twenty five. Okay, and she goes, okay. Um, Todd's gonna walk around and pull the typical procurement strategy, which is I'm gonna write down everything. I want the lawn mowed Mondays because garbage truck comes Tuesday. I want it mowed at whatever that height is. I want it mowed in diagonals. I'm gonna put this so much down that no matter if, if Don, you were a supplier and Bob's the other supplier, the results are gonna be the same. And I'm like, God, Kate, your whole example here is going exactly against what I was just saying. And I'm like, where's this leading? And I go, yeah, okay, because which one would you choose? I'm like, well, they're both going to deliver the same thing. One's cheaper than the other one. I would choose the $20 one. And she goes, yeah, but you wanted your lawn to look good, didn't you? And I said, yeah. And she goes, okay, well, wait a minute here. If you want your lawn to look good, you're making a bunch of assumptions of what that means and how you get there. You're taking all the creativity away from the supplier. You're telling them how to do it, when to do it, and why to do it. I said, yeah. And she goes, what happens if it doesn't rain that week? And I smiled and I said, because I've always wondered that. You see people mowing the lawn that don't need to be mowed. You, know, you drive down the, the, the neighborhood in the subdivision, like, why is somebody mowing that lawn? The grass isn't grown. Or you see them mowing the lawn and you realize, you wonder what? Weeding is probably what should be done. Why do you say to the supplier, look, it, I think a good lawn looks like this. I'm going to pay you one hour a week. You do what you want. You figure it out. And then let's have a constant discussion of, hey, that looks awesome. Or can you do a bit more of this or whatever? But if you set my rules of engagement, I, as the delivery <laughs> person, I will check every box. You will get every box that you check. Then you'll realize at the end of the day, the outcome didn't exist. We've all heard of contracts where the supplier did what they did and the result wasn't there. So her whole research is based on a Nobel Prize economic winner from 2009 um, is around outcome-based contracting saying, I don't care how you do it. I care about the result. And more and more performance models going to that. So it's a change in mindset because most procurement people are taught, no, no, I want to take every variability out of here. I want mm -hmm. a level four technician. I want them on Tuesday. I want them to respond within three hours. I mean, I'm going to put this thing so in depth. I'm going to meet those things. But if you want it to be more profitable, there's a good chance you're not going to get there because you're tying my hands. Does that make sense? Oh. Absolutely. Because... Um, in, in I wrote a, I wrote another book called the Industrial Sales Solution last year, and the uh, the very first chapter is called the Value Pyramid, and you know what I say is level one value is just the product and service, it's features and benefits, and it's you know this guy for fifty bucks an hour and this truck for seventy two fifty, and you know the next level up is you know the customer experience, and you can quantify that if you have the right the right processes in place, NPS and, and, you know, how easy you are to work with and you can get some feedback, but the, the next level up is outcomes. Yeah. It's, it's selling your value based on outcomes and the outcomes are not just, you know, you defining your outcomes. It's collaboratively with the clients. And what are the outcomes you want out of this project? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Like what are the results? And the other part that is interesting, and I know you've experienced this, that what procurement wants as an outcome is one thing, right? And they want certain things. But what does engineering want for an outcome? What does safety want for an outcome? What does the execution utilizers want for an outcome? And you know, the, the, the total solution image is the best, the best thing that they should be doing 
it isn't one or the other. It's how do you how do you create the right solution that ties in all of those different stakeholders to give them an outcome that is exactly what they wanted, even though they they haven't even all got together to talk about it themselves. And I think that's what's the the, the, the the component because I have to remind people companies announce earnings as a company, mm-hmm. not as a function. Yeah. And sometimes, and I got lucky, my C, you know, he's given different directions and they all are going to hit their KPIs, but he goes, you know, I wanted that to have the end result to happen. You guys need to get into a room. So I had a chance to be down in South America one time doing an event for a big, uh, I think it was a paper company. Long story short, it was procurement, um, maintenance and reliability. The three different people that are stakeholders of the distributor I was working with plus our company. And we're all standing around having coffee beforehand and it was pretty obvious I was not local. (laughs) One because of, well, just my size. I mean, (laughs) big, big loud Canadian guy in the room, kind of obvious. But it was amazing how people within the own, their own company, this paper company, didn't know each other. Sure. And they, they were walking up to each other, going, "Oh, are you are you from like the supply? Are you from the? Oh, you're 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 a colleague of mine." And we finished the presentation. It started with, "Here's how you should buy and how you should think holistically on best value." And the head of procurement stood up and goes, "I've been trying to implement this for years, but." It's those maintenance guys and reliability guys. They never gave me any specific ideas of what value was. They just kept coming saying, I want to buy from that supplier. And they make this reliability one. I've told you to stop buying three bids in the lowest price. They never bothered to sit down and say, what is a value? And yeah. again, the reliability and technical people, they just use generic terms. Yeah. And, and that leads to something just, I mean, I think it's a funny quick story. I was doing a procurement conference in Europe and I've got this slide that walks through the different stages of where value is found. And I had this word that hopefully resonates with uh, the sales teams that are on here, uh, more reliable or reliability. So I say this word reliability and this hand goes up and uh, I, I say, yeah, yeah, yes. And what does that word mean? And these are chief procurement officers of Fortune 1000 companies. I mean, these are MBA people that are 55 years old. I mean, and I remember I was walking back to the lectern to grab the water to say, how do I explain reliability without using the typical engineering terminology? Because it seems that that seems to be the problem. And the person sitting one or two beside him says, that's the word that salespeople use when they're overpriced and there's nothing behind it. (laughs) I started to chuckle. I said, no. And I, I just was putting the water back down and the gentleman running the conference, the chief of procurement, uh, the Lego professor of procurement to, around the world stood and goes, Todd, let me handle this. Let me try to explain it to him. So, you know, again, but if you weren't from a technical or engineering background and I wasn't the first time I heard the word reliability, what, what does that mean? You know, men are from Venus, Mars, whatever that's saying. I mean, again, these are words that the technical people understand. Reliability, it's like, that's just extra money being spent for no reason. We got to explain what does reliability mean. Reliability means like, cost. There's a lot. There's a lot of nomenclature that different people use, and you know, and so it, it can be particularly, I think, in in the industrial space. But I think in any business, if you're using language like reliability, mm-hmm. 
and you're using it because you just you've had 15 meetings with different engineering and quality teams and they keep using it so you're trying to mimic them and then you go to talk to someone in contracts or procurement or execution and they're like well you know our system is the most reliable and literally you're using the same words that another department used but it means something totally different to them and you haven't you haven't explained what it means in a way that's going to be valuable for that listener and, and, and that's where I think you always have to stop and say, when I say value, I mean this. Yes. And by reliable, what does that mean? The economic impact of reliability is, right. you know, my engineers would say, well, the machine runs when it's supposed to run. But it's, <clears> okay, well, yeah. and, depending, and depending on the person, it may not even be, you know, the language you use might not even want to, you might not want it to be even economic value. It might be schedule value. Yep. Right. It might be startup value, the reliability of this component working through startup. So you won't have a startup issue yep. is 0.2% compared to the market at 5%. Right. Or it could be reliability that using our technology, you are guaranteed to eliminate, to you know, remove three schedule days out of this project. And that's yep. worth $60 million to yep. you. Mm -hmm. Another thing to, to add there, which is come, something I've probably learned over the last few years, is for certain things like this, like economic, but mm -hmm. other things is to storytell. Because, Absolutely. I, I mean, again, as a non-engineer, again, I've been living with them for 30 years, so enough of it's rubbed off, but, you know, 97.24% of the time, okay, it's not it's not a number that's resonating so yeah, yeah. and, and it, it, for because we have people listening from around the world there's a a famous american advertisement years ago uh cell phone for it was verizon the big cell phone company and they were they spent years saying our network is more reliable than they would even put a number to it i can't remember what it was but 99 point versus somebody who was 98 can you hear me now can you hear me now can you hear me now <laughs> We you think back of you like that makes so much sense because can you hear me now? What I'm trying to get across is okay, 98 versus 99. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, walking around. Hey, Don, can you hear me? Hey, just a second, let me call you back. Okay, so how many drop phone calls? The frustration associated with that. I've been trying to get a hold of you for how long? And the whole time I'm driving down the highway, there's a dead spot, which I know here, here, and here that story is starting to resonate. And I think it's another example of people that sell life insurance. And I'm not a fan of life insurance salespeople, but they don't walk in and do the economic calculation of, Todd, you're this age, and here's the probability of you dying. I would look and go, what? They storytell. Todd, I'm going to make up numbers. For $39.99 a month, wouldn't it be nice to know that if something happens, the house is taken care of and the kid, I, you know, I am a finance person by, by academic <coughs> but you don't always need to try because you might look, what's the probability of me dying? Should I put the money somewhere else? Or just saying, look at for that small amount, you know, and it goes back to the old IBM one. Nobody got fired for buying IBM. Yeah. You want to take on all that risk. So going in and saying, you know, buying from that supplier you never heard of, it's a little threatening. It's a little, you know, but you know, telling a story of, ah, you know, did you just hear that? company that bought from a supplier that they'd never tried before and then turns out that they're using child labor and their stock price went down 20 percent and there was this problem i mean a story they don't need to be your stories you know third-party stories or examples are much more than you know trying to put numbers always the things might get a little 
actually have a negative. Tell me, uh, tell me a story about um, a couple of words. I have a friend of mine, and he, he, I'm looking for my notes here on how he described it. But the difference between efficient and effective relative to cost. Well, we, uh, that's an interesting to cost. I'm not sure. I mean, you know, what, what I find often is, you know, if, you know, efficiency is about, you know, the repeated number of times it can happen, but you know, the, the effectiveness is the impact yeah. Okay. Yep. 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 Is yep. the impact of, of 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 the cost, right? I mean, that's what when you're in your book, you're talking about total profit added. And I mean, I you know the, the other way to describe that is it's about cost being cost effective as opposed to price efficient. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yep. Yeah. No, it got, it got you for a hundred percent there. A hundred percent. I mean, um, you know. The, well, the, fir the first thing I always I, I ask people um, and, and is an example to this. So, I mean, let's say in your business, so everybody that's listening, there's somebody in the business that sells their widget for $100 and there's somebody that sells their widget for 150 okay? Yeah. And you ask these people, what do you call the company, the brand, that's the higher priced one? And I've asked that question around the world in 500 different ways. I mean, amazing amount of time. Most people will come back, you know, that's the higher price. And they go, okay, what is that brand called? And they'll say, that's the premium brand. Now, if anybody uses the term premium branding in their marketing, I highly suggest you take that away. Because if you ask a procurement person what premium means, premium means paying more money for no value. Right. Premium means I paid for a logo. It's the same shirt, Todd. All you did was stamp on a logo and you want me to pay more. I'm a hard-nosed procurement person. My job isn't to pay for fluff. What I want to be able to say is I'm an investment. And the investment is the price difference, the 100 to the 150. The difference is the investment. But yeah. here's the return on that investment. The more I can quantify it, the better. But to be able to say to the customer, yes, there's a better return. And this idea of the total cost of ownership or cost side it's important, but the reason why I did this profit side is there's two sides to a balance sheet. Yeah, Cost is only one side of it. And I live in Michigan now, and it's, I'm not telling you any trade secrets. The three big American automotive companies could buy stuff cheaper than anybody in the world. They could, they could buy the tire or whatever they were buying cheaper than the Asian competitors. Yeah. I'm referring to the Hondas of the world or the Toyotas of the world, but wait, the person that could build the car cheaper because they could buy the stuff cheaper went bankrupt. Where did all those price savings go? The price savings didn't become cost savings. Yeah. Now, real quickly, because um, it's, it's tough. I, lo I, love, I love that statement. Price <laughs> savings didn't become cost savings. It didn't get to my bottom line. So the true story is, and I'm not sure if it was all General Motors or just Cadillac. That's where I have a friend that's in the auto business, an engineer for the racing teams. But he said, Todd, back in the late 70s, Cadillac's advertising budget as a percent of sales was a rounding error, like 1%. Okay. Right. Now it's 18 or 20%. Like, holy crap. Just think there's, isn't the, the, the is it GM place in Vancouver? Don't they have a logo? Uh, right. At least GM's got their name on a soccer team somewhere in Europe. Like, 
think of the Super Bowl. There's you know, how much those commercials got. Wait, maybe I should have made a card that people liked, that they were really happy with it. They perceived value from it. They wouldn't have gone somewhere else. I'm paying all those price savings became a huge cost in marketing to customer acquisition. Yeah, like, inter inter interesting. Uh, you know, more a modern modern equivalent to that. Do you know what the marketing budget of Tesla is? <laughs> I believe zero. <laughs> Almost zero. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Basically, it's Elon's Twitter account. Yep, yep. Which, as a shareholder, scares the crap out of me sometimes because I think they're okay. That's another story. But uh... <laughs> yeah, but you know, the point is, is that you know, if you if you if you create value, or at the very least, the the buying customer perceives the value, mm -hmm. then you have one of the largest companies in the world. Yep, and, and just think of your world. You do a bunch of work, and I think value quantification, we talk about it a lot as part of the sales process. Yes. I think if you choose me, here's the business impact, take that business case to justify to your boss. And quick example, everybody that's listening, go ask your boss next week, can I get $100,000 for this new product or service I wanna buy? And just mm -hmm. see the reaction. Because- Well, it's funny enough, I, I had that exact conversation <laughs> with one of my team members. Um, uh, just on Tuesday, a couple of days ago, he wants to spend a hundred thousand dollars on this new uh, storage Quonset hut for our 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 storage yard. And I said, "Well, what's the what's how is that going to impact profitability?" Yeah, what's what? Yeah, what, and, and he was he was a probably well, it's a hundred grand. It's a hundred grand. It's a hundred grand. I said, "I understand that. That's not the question." <laughs> The question I, I is, grand. Yes, I can see that hundred grand. grand, is it a nice to have, or is it, you know, if we don't spend a hundred grand, are we going to spend 300 grand on materials handling? Like do the math. Yep. Yep. Make it reasonable, make it justifiable, make it so I can yep. change it, you know, et cetera. But if not, because I say, if anybody calls me or sends me an email, say my boss gave me the hundred grand, didn't ask why I'll be calling to ask for a consulting opportunity or a job because I mean, <laughs> seriously, they're going to ask, and they might not specifically say, give me the value case, but they're yeah. going to ask questions like, okay, uh, where's the money going to come from from this? What's my payback? Yeah. You know, what are the improvements? And they're going to do a either very conscious or unconscious risk value assessment. Yeah. Well, I mean, I find it interesting that, you know, when you think about this, right, you know, when we go through some sort of capital expenditure justification process, mm -hmm. we go through the entire quantification return on investment yes, yes. side. Hey, we're going to spend $100,000 here. We're going to spend $100,000 here. And why is that $100,000 better than that $100,000? Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. I think your clients don't do the same thing. Right, right, right. So now, but the problem is this, right? When you're, when you're doing it in your own house, you might you you have a lot of subject matter knowledge on your own business, mm -hmm. but do you think that the procurement department at your client X is going to do your homework for you, or are they going to or are they going to do their own homework in the easiest way that they can to figure out how they can make a decision? That's a, a true story. So I was somewhere, and I and uh, there's always been this debate where salespeople believe procurement won't give them their numbers of what they measure for value because salespeople will quote unquote, use it against them. Knowledge is power. Right. And I was somewhere and I was talking about something and somebody said, Todd, 
what's your cost to produce this type of bearing on this factory in this country? And I said, well, how would I know? Yeah, how do you think I know what the average energy consumption of my pumps are? Right, right. I, I, mean, I, mean, I mean, now if you came to me and said, research says, or I talked to Bob, who's the expert in this at your company, and he said, that's something, but I don't know all that. Mm -hmm. So do your homework ahead of time and make the assumptions reasonable. <clears throat> find the best example there is to say, okay, um, you know, we think that, well, let's use an example. The downtime is $3,000 an hour. Mm -hmm. People will say that's high, that's low, or close enough, mm -hmm. right? If I go in there and I say, Don, what's uh, downtime? I'm not telling you, that's proprietary. So uh, that's a true story. A steel company, I won't use their name, says, you know, because downtime is such a high uh, impact on the value quantification, um, we don't, one, we're not gonna tell you what it is. And we can laugh about it, but I did a Google search and their head of reliability engineering just presented a paper on downtime reduction, like, and it was down to the third decimal point. So I'm like, you right. find it out. And then as we're leaving the meeting room, on the wall was all the KPIs. Right. I laughed. I said, you know, did I sign an NDA when I walked in here? Because here are all the numbers. And they just kind of laughed and we were laughing about it. But, you know, the, the example, and I hope this resonates with people, but, you know, if I said, if I said to Don, okay, Don, uh, you're, you have a, a, a technical person, an engineer, you know, I said, Don, what do you pay that person? I don't want to put you that spot down, but there's a good chance you're saying none of your business, Don. Mm -hmm. You know, I said, hey, my understanding is that, you know, because of Alberta, blah, 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 I'm making this up as you can tell, but, you know, it's around what, 100 grand a year now, 90 grand, depending on oil, 100 grand. I'm probably going to get a reaction from you. Yeah. You know, it might be just be a facial reaction. It might be something I wish. Yep. Or, well, you know, the old days or something. You know, psychologically, you know, when you ask a question, uh, people can choose not to answer, but they ha they still answer the question for themselves. <laughs> yeah, right? Yep. You, know, you, you can't not answer a question. You might not verbalize it, but if mm -hmm. you ask me a question and maybe you even make an assumption, you know, if you say a hundred grand, I go, well, yeah, it's 85. So yeah, yep. it's pretty close. Yep, 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 yep. Or you're just going to derate. That's why I always said when you're doing assumption of math, yeah. you know it's better to be understandable than to be the fourth decimal point well well yeah absolutely i mean you know i can move, on, I can move off of you can quantify value in a lot of different ways it could be time it could be productivity it could be and you know one of the ways that i do it is i'll just i'll just create a common denominator let's assume that for all the people involved in this process, that the average cost for the way I'm going to do it and the way you're going to do it is $100. Mm -hmm. Now we just just let's just add up the time savings, and you know, and then you can you know even if they even if they substitute $100 for our cost us 150 per per person hour or cost us 80, doesn't matter because it's it's a common denominator because what we're really trying to do is quantify time, and you know in an industrial facility production time is a big number and so if you if i you know if if we compare time savings to get the work done they know it's hundreds of thousands if not millions of dollars a day that downtime costs in a steel mill or in a refinery or in in any of those facilities and same thing you know they know their productivity numbers and you can if you can improve productivity 
And there's lots of studies that talk about how do you improve safety? And, mm -hmm. you know, you don't need, you don't need to make that stuff up. You can, you can Google 15 ways to how does better productivity improve safety and what's the impact of profitability for the client when it's a safer workplace. All of those things are ways that you can create um, comparisons that will help you establish value. But I think one of the, the smartest things that I that you've said that I want people to hear is that don't expect your customer to do that. And there you have it. Thank you, everybody, so much for listening to this episode of the Amplifier Podcast. If you'd like to get in touch with or learn more about Don or Todd and what they both do, then you can do so anytime through their links in the episode description. Make sure you leave the show a five-star rating. It truly does help us out a lot. And don't forget to subscribe so you never miss any future episodes. But with all that said, I thank you so much for listening again, and we can't wait to see you next time on the Amplifier Podcast.